Greetings from Amsterdam. Been very, very busy over here in Europe on this tour. It's been a wonderful tour. I've played 15 nights in a row. A little bit worn down, but I'm enjoying it very much. Since I last spoke to you, I've played in Newport, Colleyford, Andover, Alfreston, London, Wakefield. Went way on up into Cumbria and played in Hale, where I believe I once recorded an episode in a barn there, but I don't remember what episode. Went down to outside of Manchester to Bury, Sheffield, Brosley, Birmingham, Milton Keynes, London, and flew on over here to where I'm at now in Amsterdam. Been very busy and it's been a very good tour. But I'd like to talk a little bit about Newport before we get going here. I've always liked Newport. The gigs have been great there. Lots of people show up. It's a working class, gritty town, which I like. But there's been so much great history that's taken place there. A lot of great music history. I always like thinking about that stuff when I'm there. I walked across this bridge there, and in 1913, Harry Houdini jumped off this bridge. He was, had chains and shackles all over himself, and he's doing an escape. And the police had forbidden him to do it, so he had to somehow elude the police as thousands of people cheered him on. He jumped off the bridge and went underwater, and then a couple minutes later, rose up somewhere downstream with the chains off of him and uh, was promptly arrested. There's also a hotel that I've always stayed at. And before they built the hotel, there was a theater standing in that spot. And I didn't know this until this particular trip, but there was a Smith's gig that turned into a riot. And I guess Morrissey got sick and left and the fans were not happy, so they started rioting. And my friend Grant Showbiz walked up on stage, who was the sound man and producer for the Smiths, he walked up on stage to try to calm people down, and somebody hit him in the head with a bottle. <laughs> I never knew this story, and I know Grant pretty well. We've spent a month in a van together when I was touring with Billy Bragg, and he told me a lot of great stories, and he's also been on this show back when, but uh, he never told me that story. I guess the Smiths refused to ever play in Wales after that incident. Next time I see Grant, I'm going to ask him about that, and I think that would make a pretty good episode for this show. So hopefully somewhere down the road I can make that happen. But early the next morning after the gig, I got up real early and took a taxi outside of town to this graveyard. It was real rainy, but I took a walk around. This graveyard is where a very young Joe Strummer worked as a grave digger. I walked around and took a look at some of the graves that Joe Doug. He was living there in Newport. He was playing in a band. I believe it was the Vultures and hanging out with some art students and people like that. When he left Newport and moved back to London, that's when he formed The Clash. It was a beautiful old cemetery and it was great to walk around and have a connection with Joe on a rainy morning in Newport. friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in a hotel room in Amsterdam. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. 
I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's a creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Larry Gross. Larry is a singer and a songwriter, and he's the host of Mountain Stage on National Public Radio. You can find out everything you need to know about Larry at mountainstage.org. I was recently invited to appear on Mountain Stage, and you can find that episode at mountainstage.org or at NPR's website. But they were really good to me. We sat up and just talked for a while, and uh, I was listening to Larry tell stories. Everybody that worked on the show were just wonderful, just down-to-earth people. It wasn't your typical music industry situation, and that's a very good thing. They were very good people, and I enjoyed it. But as I was listening to Larry tell stories, I said, man, it would be beautiful if you would share some of these stories on the show. And he was nice enough to do it. So we got up real early the next morning, and you can hear it in my voice. My voice is a little bit haggard on this. We got up early and got together in a hotel room in Johnson City, Tennessee. And Larry shared a lot of great stories. I have a whole lot of extra stuff that I'm sure will turn into an episode down the road. But for this episode, we just concentrated on this strange, wonderful moment in history when R.E.M. decided to come to West Virginia to play Mountain Stage. There's Larry Gross. The way that came about was we had uh, Kevin Kenny on the show of Driving and Crying. He was on as a solo uh, about a year before and he came on though, and and when he came on, he had Peter Buck playing with him, and obviously we know who we know we knew who Peter Buck was, but Kevin Welch was on that show. Matter of fact, Clive Gregson and Collister were on the show with Kevin Kenny and Kevin Welch. You know Kevin Welch yeah. probably. Yeah, he was on that show, and we were still we were in this old auditorium at that time. We moved we've moved twice in Mountain Stage. We moved it from the brand new kind of culture center theater downtown to an old theater. And then we moved back to the culture center after about two years because the old theater it was very cool and atmospheric, but it was too large for us. And it also was not accessible and stuff. So as a federal grant show, we couldn't have a venue that wasn't accessible to everyone and so forth. So we moved back. But when Kevin and Peter Buck came on, it was at the old place. I remember Peter coming up afterwards. I was saying, Hey, thanks for you know doing the show and, you know, telling Kevin did a good job and both of them. And Peter said, this is a really good show. I really like this. I think I'll get my band to come and do this. We looked at each other. We said, yeah, great. <laughs> Andy, band. Yeah, Andy, Andy, Andy and I said, yeah, yeah. Well, of course, we were enthusiastic. Oh, yeah, man, great. Anytime. Just let us know. And then they left and we said, yeah, there's a good fat chance of that. You know, because if you don't remember probably, I mean, you, you might, but some listeners did. R.A.M. was huge. It was like U2 or something. They were like huge. And and they were uh, grown at this time. I don't know if this was, the, this was near the, their peak of popularity, near. Because the next year they made Out of Time, 
and they didn't do a tour. They made the Out of Time record and had the huge hit, Losing My Religion, but then they informed Warner Brothers that they weren't going to tour. Now you can imagine the record company, how happy they were to hear that, because they thought, you know, I'm sure that was like, what are you talking about? I mean, that's how we sell records, you know, one way. But in any case, it worked out for all of them, I guess, because that record sold huge. So then we got this call from Burtis Down, who was, uh, I think so, or, or I didn't get the call because I don't, I don't stay in the office. A Andy got the call. It was either from Jefferson or Burtis, who were their two managers at that time. Andy, I remember Andy stopped me. I was downstairs in the, in the public broadcasting, West Virginia Public Broadcasting building, and I was going towards the studio where we edit, and uh, he, he stopped me and he said, hey, would you like R.E.M. to be on the show? And, you know, <laughs> first of all, I, I thought he was like half joke. I mean, I don't know why it was joke, but I said, so I said, yes, Andy, I'd like R.E.M. to be on the show anytime, any day of the week, any hour of the day. If they want to come on at 2 o'clock on Tuesday morning, that's okay. <laughs> we'll make a show. And I thought, why are you asking this question? And he said, because they called and said they're interested in doing Mountain Stage. And I said, well, obviously, yeah, of course we want to have them on the show. And it progressed. They, they called, and we thought, okay, that was an exploratory call. We thought, well, we're not sure what they're, what they're talking about. What we found out was they only did three shows. They put out the Out of Time album. They did Saturday Night Live. They did MTV Unplugged, and they did Mountain Stage. And our show had the biggest seating capacity. Those other shows, you know, very small, and very select people got to see that. But our show was, it had this, oh, what we did was we decided to move back to the old auditorium because that's what Peter Buck had seen. That's the auditorium he liked. So we said, okay, for this show, we'll move back. And also, it had about twice as many seats as the, our auditorium. Now it had about 800 seats, maybe even 1,000 those days. So people obviously came from far and near, far and wide to see this, including I think there were twenty five press people, twenty five countries of press people came <laughs> because upon West Virginia, yeah, which you know, and we didn't even know at that time, and we had no clue really. We knew they were a big act and all that, but we didn't deal in that kind of, and we still don't. We don't deal in big showbiz acts and so forth. But of course, they weren't showbiz like guys; they were regular guys i mean michael you know was, was more more of an artist kind of uh, disposition but very nice they they drove their own cars in they you know it was not a big jet set huge whatever thing uh, but they came in and their crew came and we said well do you want us to change the format of the show so that you get more time they said no, no. we'll just do it like everybody else And in those days, still in 91, I, don't, I can't remember when we switched this. Now, we were going, first of all, we we're going live on the radio still, live. And secondly, in those days, the lead act would do a set at the beginning and at the end of the show. That's the way we did it. It was like they did four songs at the beginning and four songs at the end, or roughly. And then the other acts would be in between. And that's the way we did it. So they said, oh, no, we'll do just what you do. We're we'll going to do it acoustically. They didn't. They didn't have, uh, they had Peter Holtzapple was playing with them as the, as the Peter. fifth guy. Yeah. And Peter's been on the show several times after that. But, and our, some of our people set in with them on a song or two. Denny Bonet played the violin with them on one song. She was a regular on our show. 
Isn't there something on YouTube of Billy Bragg uh, singing a John Prine song? Was yeah. That, was that yeah. that day? Yeah, it was that day. And what happened was we did the show. And there's another thing that was funny about that day is the governor, Governor Caperton, uh, Gaston Caperton, who's, who's still around and is a good guy. And, and he was married to a woman at that time, uh, Rachel Warby, who was uh, the conductor of the Wheeling Symphony Orchestra. So they, they had an artistic bent. And, and, and Gaston just liked music anyway. So they came to this show. And that, I'll never forget Billy getting, there's the governor in the front row, the governor and his, and his wife, getting everybody stand up and sing along with Billy, making the world safe for capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, man, this is the surreal quality here is getting bigger all the time. <laughs> First of all, here's REM in West Virginia. And secondly, there's the governor singing Make the World Safe for Capitalism. And Billy, he did uh, Tank Park Salute. Oh, man, what a song. Oh, it was, he killed. And well, he, he's, he's a killer anyway. He's a great guy, too, as you know. And he's, been, he's come back on the show several times. And he's a, he's a genuine guy. I mean... He, it's like the Indigo Girls to me. These are people who, if you see them doing a cause somewhere, you can be sure that they actually believe this cause. It isn't yeah. for their career; they're doing this. Yeah. You know, I that, try to tell people this when I can, but um, I spent a month in a van with Billy. You get to know somebody. You yeah, can't fake absolutely. it after a month in a van. Yeah. He's exactly who you think he is. Yeah, that's what I. That's I mean, and I've never spent a month with him, but he's been on the show several times and. He's gone out of his way to do it a couple of times, which is like he didn't have to. He doesn't need us, really. You know, nobody needs our little show. <laughs> we understand that. I mean, you know, people that are unknown, of course, it helps them. But don't we don't flatter ourselves to think that REM needs to come on mountain stage or that, for that matter, Billy Bragg does. They do it because they want to do it for their own reasons. They have something to promote, but they also, thank God, they, they have some respect for the show, I guess, because that's why they do it. But Billy was great. And Robin was one. Robin was so good. I don't know if you know Robin Hitchcock. The show sold out very quickly. When we, we said the show was going to sell, like within an hour or something, it was all sold out because it was on ticket service. So it sold in Charleston and around wherever, around the country. People could buy it right at that time, and so they did. But there were no reserved seats. So before the show started, there was a long line because everybody wanted to get in first. <laughs> you know, to set the good seat. So there was a long line for some hours beforehand. And Robin went out and busked for the line. <laughs> he, he went out <laughs> and sang to people. They didn't know who he was, some of them. You know, he was out there singing. He's a very amusing guy, too. So he, he would do stuff. One guy who had a chemistry book or something. He was studying, a kid, a student, while waiting in line. Robin took his book and read it. It's a Shakespearean way. He can do this sort of thing, you know. And he read the book, and everybody was laughing because of the way he was he was doing. He was just performing for the people, which was great. What a nice thing to do. And the guy, by the way, REM and all those guys, they went, they hung around like uh, uh, went to the. We had a minor league ball team at that time, and they went went to the ball. A couple of them went out to the ballpark and went to the game, went to the bars, you know. And it was. Uh, there was one woman who now is a, a judge in West Virginia. She, uh, we did an interview recently with her because we, one of our interns did a documentary about that show because they, they released a 25-year record. I don't know if you know that, but they, they did a 25-year celebration of Out of Time, and they, and they had three CDs on it. One was the original Out of Time, I guess remixed or what enhanced or whatever, and then they had a bunch of outtakes that they put in there on another CD, and then they put the whole Mountain Stage show in there. And so, 
because of that, and they it was very nice. They coordinated that with us and everything. And because of that, we did a little documentary and interviewed some people who had been there 25 years ago. And one of them now is a federal judge, a woman, and she said she saw uh, Mike Mills, the bass player. He's the one that went to the. He's a great guy too. He he went to the minor league ball game, but he she saw him in a bar because she knew that uh, the dashboard. Saviors were playing there, and they were friends there from Athens too. So she figured that some REMM guys would be at this bar because those guys were there. And she went and saw there was Mill sitting up there, and so she went up to him and said, "Hey, I know you, who you are, and blah blah blah." And he said, "Well, then uh, why don't you? Uh, want you? I'll let you buy me a drink then." And so she said, "Hey, you're the rich guy. You should buy me a drink." <laughs> that was the West Virginian right there, and he laughed, you know, and bought her a drink. <laughs> so that was great. But they they uh, they hung out. They they came to the show, and then and then at after the after the two hours, then we had we had to do the show on time in two hours, which we did. But uh, they wanted to play some more, so after we did the the finale, which they chose the finale song, uh, when they and and I don't know who like a Stipe chose it. I'm guessing it was uh, they chose uh, Jimmy Dale Gilmore's. Have you ever seen Dallas from a DC? You know, which is great. So we all did that for the finale. Flatlanders. Yeah, yeah, Flatlanders song. It was great, it, but they knew that song. It's, it was interesting to me what they knew. They knew a lot of things. They, they knew a lot of material of all kinds, which I shouldn't be surprised at. It's, but because, you know, even though they, were, they started off kind of very alt, and, but they were steeped in R&B and, you know, everything. I mean, and Stipe had a wide-ranging interest in music, I know, because he sent me recommendations afterwards for several years. And he would just send back in these days, no email. He would send me like letters. I probably threw those away. Stupid. I probably <laughs> should have kept those letters. Anyway, the, 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 after the show, they said, we want to play some more. We said, is that okay? We said, of course it's okay. You say, play as long as you want. And so, thank goodness, Andy called to the station and said, look, preempt whatever program's coming up here. Let this go on radio. So I think it just went on radio in West Virginia. Because when we released it to the national show, we didn't have the extra. But during that extra 30, 40 minutes or whatever it was, he said, come on, Billy, up here. And they just sang and sang, I think, Hello in there. He sang with Billy yeah. Bragg, the Prine song. And we, and just other, we sang Dark End of the Street, you know, Dan Penn song. And I can't remember what else was there. But, you know, some of it was rough. We didn't use it. We, we don't, wouldn't use it nowadays, even on a special, because nobody really knew what we we're doing. Some of it was great, of course, because it was just real... Let's do it like you would do in a bar. <laughs> come on up on stage. Come on here. You sing with us on this one, you know. And and that was a great one of of Billy and and, uh, and Stipe singing "Hello" in there. Was this bootlegged? Yeah, it was bootlegged for years after that, and you could buy it. We saw it, you know, uh, later on here and there, and and it was bootlegged in in several ways. I think some people got it off air in West Virginia, but then some people there, of course, had like. Deadhead kind of, they had their own recording equipment. So some of it sounds horrible because it's the room sound, you know I mean? It's just doesn't, it's not great, but, but yeah, it was bootlegged. And we've seen that we found those things for a while. We tried to collect those and see if we could get them ourselves, get copies, but we didn't want to pay for them. So we'd get them if we could. Um, but that was that. And then, and, and afterwards, uh, uh, Michael sent me some suggestions of which I put several on the show and, and, uh, the, the most, important one that he sent me was Vic Chestnut. Because he, he had produced on Texas Hotel Records. I don't know if it's Vic's first record or what record, but he produced 
early record. So he said, you should listen to this guy. So I listened to this guy. And I said, wow, this guy's great. I knew nothing about Vic's story, you know. And uh, so we got Vic on. That was the beginning of having Vic on the show. Had a lot of good conversation with Vic. He was interested in literature. He's a wonderful songwriter and, and funny, so funny. You know, he said once before he did one of his songs, he said, it was, you know, he was a Southerner, deep. And he said something you would never expect. He said, uh, oh, Robert E. Lee, what a moron he was. <laughs> <laughs> you never hear that phrase. <laughs> a lot of things about Robert E. Lee, but being a moron wasn't one. <laughs> The fallout from this was it a big boon for the show? Oh yeah, this this this, and you know we were on the Today Show. The guy named Mike Leonard did a really great piece in those days. He would do special pieces for the uh, Today Show. He did a wonderful piece, and well, I think the end he said, you know, this band is uh, shared it, it, shined a little of its spotlight on this on this little show in West Virginia, which he did, which they did, and it opened doors immediately for us because suddenly we were on the map. We certainly, we've never been on the map as a great continent, but it's good to be on there as a little dot, a little <laughs> island somewhere that's actually someone knows who you are. So it opened it to record companies, agents, managers, artists, who then, well, REM did this show. It must, must be something, there must be something to it. So that really put us up another several levels. We skipped <laughs> a lot of levels and jumped up to where we could talk to a lot of people. And did more stations come on board? Yeah, we probably got some more stations from that, but we never, you know, we've never had a whole lot of stations. Uh, that time we had maybe 120 or something like that. Now we have over 200, uh, which is not, we're certainly no, no great popular very home companion, but, but that's, but the good thing about our show is that if uh, those 200 stations, the listeners, are music lovers. There's no other reason to listen to this show unless you like a wide variety of music. The BBC had alerted us that they wanted to run this show because REM was so big and they weren't going on tour. They wanted to run our show on BBC Two on Boxing Day after Christmas. And and so we said, of course, you know, NPR told us this. We didn't come directly to us, I'm sure. We said, of course. Billy, I think it was on the show, he even said it was... <laughs> Was, uh, well, Rob and I were talking, and yeah, we, we, we get no airplay on BBC, so we have to come to West Virginia <laughs> to, to get on BBC. <laughs> we all had a big laugh about that one. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's where you would naturally go to get on BBC is Charleston, West Virginia. I really appreciate you coming in here and sharing stories. Okay. I appreciate you having me on. My pleasure, and you were great, and we'll look forward to seeing you again down the road. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Larry for meeting up with me in that hotel room on a very early morning in Johnson City, Tennessee. You can find out everything you need to know about Larry at mountainstage.org. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com, and you can pick up a CD, a T-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's records. You can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. 
If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.